Well, good morning, beloved saints of the Lord, priests of the Most High God. It's my privilege to stand before you today to bring God's word to you. I do see we have a lot of visitors today, more than we normally have, and it's kind of the good news. The bad news is today we're going to talk about the tithe. (laughs) Now, before you try to leave, I have guards posted at the door. Okay, the guards have left, so I'm locking the doors. You can't leave. You have to stay here. So I'm Bill Smith. I'm the Bill Smith that doesn't play the bass. That's the other guy. First Sunday I showed up here about, whatever, seven years ago or so, I saw on the, the announcement that I was playing bass on my first Sunday. How did they know <laughs> I was going to be there? So we'll, we'll work with that uh, system here in a moment. So given it is, uh, we have visitors here, and I'm talking about the tithe, which means 10% what I what I've decided to do is make the sermon 10% shorter, which out of 30 minutes is only three minutes. So, interesting and difficult topic to talk around. And uh, I think you might be, some of you might be surprised at some of the things that the Bible says and doesn't say about the tithe. I'd like to start out with a, a story about three pastors who used to get together once in a while and sort of talk business, you know, talk shop with each other. And one of the times they got together, the... Um, they got talking about the offering and how they determine their own salary. And, and the first pastor said, well, on Monday I take the collection and I, I, I put a rope in a circle in the back of the sanctuary and I throw the, the entire collection up in the air and whatever lands inside the circle I keep for myself and whatever lands outside the circle I give to the Lord. And second guy said, well, actually I do a similar thing, but I reverse it. Whatever lands in the circle I give to God and whatever lands outside the circle I keep for myself. The third pastor said, come on guys, where's your faith? I throw the entire collection up in the air and I tell God he can keep whatever he wants and everything else that falls to earth is mine. (laughs) So, today we're going to continue our study of Malachi. And so, um, we're going to continue our exploration of Malachi and we're going to be going uh, back into the third chapter. Uh, Malachi 3, 7-12 says... Ever since the time of of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, and yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, and you are under a curse. Your whole nation because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then... All the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Let us pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you. We come before you with hope and expectation and with joy and anticipation of what you would have to say to us today. I pray especially, Lord, even for myself, that I choose to stand aside, for I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to say of my own. So I look forward to what you have to say as well. So I pray you would open our minds to gain knowledge and understanding 
and wisdom, that we might be different and forever changed and better for having been here with you today in the study of your word. So, just to review and catch up to where we've been, there's these accusations that are occurring in Malachi. The first accusation Julie covered in the first chapter, they doubted God's love. And in the, later on in that chapter, he, the accusation is, you are despising my name and despising my table. Remember, God linked the table and his name together. And the, the third accusation was, you've turned from ta- sound teaching. Remember, we talked about the, the theses spread on the face and the teaching is, is no longer sound. You've permitted the teaching and worship of foreign gods through the marrying of daughters of foreign gods. Treated marriage with disdain by divorcing the wife of your youth. Accused me, God, of being unjust and delighting in evil. And today the accusation is, you are robbing me, robbing me of my tithes and my offerings. So let's explore this a little bit, and really to go into to great death on the tithe and all, we would probably be like a four-week series. There's so much that goes on in Leviticus and so on. But for our purposes today, most people know that the tithe is something that was required by law. It was not voluntary. It was obligated. And it was 10% of what they earned or grew, and it was given to the temple. An offering was beyond the tithe. The amount was voluntary. And so while it was encouraged, it had to be given willingly, not under obligation. But what they both have in common is they were just returning to God that which was already God's. So we see the first mention of this 10% in Genesis. And so back in Genesis 14, we remember, of course, Leviticus didn't exist, wasn't written yet, but we see the first mention of a tithe. And the story here is about Abram. And Abram finds out that this other king, King Chedorlaomer, I think his name is pronounced, defeats Sodom. And as he's returning from Sodom back home, he's taken all the goods that he'd gotten and all the people. Abraham finds out about this, and of course, one of those people would be his cousin Lot, right? Or his nephew Lot, I'm sorry. And so he goes out to go really just rescue Lot, and he does so. And he defeats not only King Chedorlaomer, but all the other kings who were with him. So after the victory, the king of Sodom goes out to meet with Abram. And he tells him to keep all the goods for himself, but, to, but he would like the people back, and Abram refuses. So we're going to look at that in a moment. There's this other king that also comes out to meet with, uh, with Abram, and this is the king of Salem, who also has another title. And his title is Priest of God Most High, and his name was Melchizedek. You guys already know all this stuff. We can just end the service right now. And <laughs> So Abram then gives Melchizedek one-tenth of his loot, or his booty, so to speak. This actually was not that uncommon. He wasn't required to do it, but it was, it was a tradition that men had come up with. We see evidence of this in China and Greece and so on. Whenever there was a battle won, they would take about 10% of what they had gotten and offer it to their gods. So at this point, we see this notion of this idea of giving a tenth to some other being outside themselves who seems to have probably helped in this whole battle. He wasn't required to do it because the law didn't exist at this point, but he did it out of tradition. And then we see later on in Genesis, Jacob makes a vow before he goes on his big adventure in life, and he promises to God, he makes a vow, if God will be with me and will watch over me, all that I give, I will give you 
All that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So he follows in Abram's path, in his, his tradition. Then the law, then it becomes involuntary. So this was the first notion we see of this, this tithe thing happening. And then it's going to become prescribed. And I think what's interesting here is that God is using something that man had come up with. I'll give this tenth. And we wonder, where did they come up with a tenth? And a lot of scholars say, well, it probably gave a tenth because they counted by tens because they had ten fingers. <laughs> and so an easy way to figure out, well, you get one of these, every tenth calf and so on goes to the Lord. And God uses that man-made system and adopts it and co-ops it into his system of law. This was not unusual. This has happened before when God created Adam and then created Eve from Adam. And then Adam called her woman. She was bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And so God honors his decision to call her woman, even though from God's perspective, we are all mankind. So he takes this idea that they've come up with, something they're already familiar with, and then he turns it into prescription. So initially voluntary, but then prescribed in law. And there's a lot of places in Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus, and so on, where this is prescribed. It's very clear. It's not just one verse in the Old Testament. It's in a lot of different places. The purpose of the tithe, well, let's first talk, talk about this. Does God really need any money? Does he need food? Is he out there begging? No, he's fine. So it had a purpose to teach people to revere the Lord, to acknowledge him, put God first. It wasn't the last tenth, it was the first tenth. And to support the priests and the poor, resident aliens, orphans, and widows. That was the purpose of the tithe. Otherwise, God didn't really need their money. So we see in Numbers that the tithe was primarily, there's really two tithes, but this tithe goes to the temple for the priests, for the Levites. But then even the Levites have to tithe a part of what they get. It's a tithe of the tithe. Speak thus to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the children of Israel the tithes which I have given you from them as your inheritance, then you shall offer up a heave offering of it to the Lord, a tenth of the tithe. So if you're wondering, why did the, why did the Levites get a tithe from the people, the children of Israel? It's because they were not allowed to own land. <laughs> They didn't inherit land, so they have no way to take care of themselves. So the children of Israel have to take care of the priests. We also see in Second Chronicles, they generously gave the first fruits of their grain and all the fields that they produced. They brought a great amount and a tithe of everything. So when they were prescribed to give the tithe, they did so. And now we see in Malachi that there's this turning away from that which was originally being done. In Leviticus, where most people associate most of the law, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain, from the soil, or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord because it is holy to the Lord. So, this is where we are at with regard to Malachi and this accusation of robbing God. And he, and he says, he wants them to return to him, but he says, you're robbing me. He says, you will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me, but you say, wherein have we robbed you? And he says, in the tithes and the offerings. So I look at this word rob, kaba in the, in the Hebrew, to take away or to defraud or prevent something or to spoil something. And we just agreed that God didn't really need money. 
he, he wasn't able to not make his mortgage payment because they had withheld the tithe or didn't give all the tithe. So the question I had, and I'm wondering if any of you have the same question, is what were they specifically robbing God of? What was the problem there? Well, I think verse 10 answers that question. As most of the teachers will tell you, the Bible always interprets itself, the Bible always explains itself. So if we go to verse 10, it says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. So I think what they were robbing God of, and this is me, okay, and this might be something you would talk about today when you go to whatever restaurant you want to go to today. I was going to pick Mob Pizza. might be a, a Mod Pizza is a good place to go, but <laughs> plant that in your subconscious. But, but here's what I think. This is me. I think what they were robbing God of is an opportunity to show how powerful and loving and holy he is. That's what I think. He misses that. He wants to do it. Why don't you, Lord? I can't because they've made a decision. We do the same thing. We make choices. We have free will. I wish we didn't sometimes. But we've all got ourselves in that situation where I'm my own worst enemy. I'm not being blessed, not because God doesn't love me or doesn't want to bless me. I've somehow prevented it, and I want to look at that part of myself. So the question becomes, should Christians tithe? Should Christians tithe? There are a few preachers and even denominations who believe that we should because it's the law. Uh, Steve uh, and David and I were talking about this last week, and David was sharing with us how, was it the Baptists who were saying that they don't even preach anything from the Old Testament at all because it's all the old law, and we're not under the law anymore. Except for this, yeah. <laughs> we'll take that, we'll keep that one thing. But, you know, slaughtering calves and all that, we won't do that part, but, you know, we're going we're gonna to do this part. And so you'll see this in some churches, and I'm guessing some of you have been through this at other churches where tithing is giving God the first tenth of your income. Or if you've been in a church that has some kind of a challenge, like the 90-day challenge, put God first in your finances for 90 days. Here's a nice one. If you really love Jesus, show me by your tithes. Really. By the way, I was, I'm not making any of this up. This was easy to find on the Internet. I was in a church that did something like this many years ago. We got a card. We did this canvassing or pledge drive. And uh, you could check, I'm going to go beyond my tithing, or this guy stepped up to tithing. I'm going to start giving 1% or one-tenth of my income. Or you can step towards it. I was at a church once where they put up a slide, and they had these columns, 1%, 2%, 3%, and they somehow figured out how many people were giving 1%, 2%, and 3%, and all the way up to 10%. And it was like, Two people up in the 10% column, and the rest of the church was down the 1% to 2% thing, and then we heard a sermon all about that. Oh, man, it's fun times. <clears throat> we can even train the ushers in this. You come at me like you don't plan to tithe, and I'll show you what we do as ushers to get that tithe out of them, right? Or I like this one, a bit of honesty. Your tithe is crucial to my retirement plans. Pastor Ron decided to quit beating around the bush. My favorite one is... That was the best sermon on giving I've ever heard. (laughs) So, should Christians tithe? Well, let me ask you this. Did the Israelites still tithe? 
I thought about that. Oh, I got you now. You haven't thought about that one. Finally, I got something you hadn't thought about, right? Well, what would they tithe to? There's no temple. In fact, a few years after the destruction of the temple, the leading rabbis didn't abolish but suspended the tithe because there's no temple, there's no priests, so it's no longer needed anymore. However, another type of tithe remained in place. So if you study all this tithing and all these rules, there was the 10% that went to the temple for the priests, but there was this other 10% that went to the poor. And this was in Deuteronomy 26.12. And that has remained in place. And they call it, however you pronounce that word, tzedakah, right? And tzedakah is based upon Deuteronomy 26.12, requiring to give especially for the widow and the orphan, which is, of course, a different tithe than giving to the temple. So some of the experts say that if you do all the calculations of the different kind of tithing and giving and offering, it would actually be somewhere around 22%, not 10%. And so what we have with the Old Testament, and by the way, uh, to this day this goes on. I don't know if any of you know any Jewish families this is a real important thing they do. It It seems to be the most pressing obligation placed upon the Jews today to always be ready to take care of people and to be generous with others. So in the Old Testament, we get this tithe or one-tenth. In the New Testament, we get that word, which I think we all know means... I don't either. That's the word I looked up. While I looked up, what's the Greek for 100%? We're not in a tithe anymore. It hasn't been abolished. It got stepped up. <laughs> so we read in Romans 12:1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. That, to me, is an intriguing verse. I normally separate the body and the spirit as different things, but here this verse says to offer your body as a spiritual act of worship. We also read in Romans 6.13, Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves... How do you pronounce that next word? Completely. It doesn't say give 10% of yourself. It says give yourself completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Of God. And so this reminds me of the widow and their mites. Remember this story? There, Jesus is there and he sees a widow and she just gives just a few pennies, essentially. And what does he say about that? You all have given out of your wealth and you've given a lot, but she's actually given more because she gave everything that she had. And so I go back now and I look at these accusations and I'm looking at them now a little bit differently than I was when we, when we first started studying Malachi. So that first accusation, the accusations, I think, have something to do with what God desires for us. It's not just judgment and condemnation. He's trying to move us towards something. And I think this first accusation is you doubt my love because what he really desires for us is to know that we are loved. How many of us struggle with that from time to time? You know, nobody likes me, nobody loves me, think I'll eat some worms kind of story we know. <laughs> Don't doubt my love, I love you. Even when you're going through what you're going through. He loves you through all of that. 
and you despise my name. But what he desires for us is to know him. And one way to get to know him is you study his names. How many of you have ever done that, studying God's names, right? And the more you study his names, you realize there's not a problem that you could have that he doesn't have a name for it to solve it. He wants us to know him. He's not hiding from us. You turn from my teaching, but I want you to know the truth so you can be set free. The teachings you're studying are putting shackles upon you. You're seeking after other gods and idols, things that you can see and touch, and so many people are attracted to that. But I want you to avoid being disappointed because those idols will always disappoint. You know, I'm always amazed with all these celebrity stories of all this wealth and all they have, and then the story of the night is, and they've, you know, they're into drugs or alcohol or they committed suicide or whatever it is because they become disappointed with those idols. You're being unfaithful to each other, and he talked about marriage and divorce. What I want you to learn is the real joy in life is to love others without condition, despite of or in, in, in spite of what is happening. As one person said, marriage is the gymnasium where you work out your love. <laughs> and some of us, <clears throat> not me, of course, but some people are harder to love than others in marriage. You're very easy to love. but He says, you think I don't care about justice. What I really want for you <clears throat> is to have peace through the storm. Because I do care. And I will work out things that are just and right. Not the way you want them or when you want that worked out. And in this last, when you rob me of my joy, but I want you to experience my power, my love, my holiness. That's what I really want for you. And that's why I'm giving you this information in Malachi to help you move back to return to me for your own good. So we have this teaching about the tithe, and it could be, again, much more in depth. I don't mean to slight it, but I really want to get to this idea of asking, what does the New Testament say about tithing? Nothing. It's mentioned, but it's not mentioned as a commandment we still fulfill. It's mentioned either as explaining something that happened, or, in this case, what was happening. So we see in Matthew, Jesus is talking. And Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, which is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. <clears throat> now, some might consider that as, oh, we're supposed to still tithe, but Jesus has not been resurrected yet. So he's still talking to you. You're not even following the, the system that was laid out for you. You think just the tithe covers you. So therefore, we don't have to tithe. You don't have to give 10%. You can give 11% if you want to, or 3 or 47 whatever your heart tells you, because it always is a heart thing. In fact, it always was a heart thing. The problem is their hearts were hardened. If you're in Christ, something's happened to your heart, and it's softened. So, <clears throat> you don't have to tithe, you don't have to give at all. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say you don't have to give, but you don't have to but you'll want to. So the New Testament says some things about giving. And I'm just going to go through a couple different passages here. And the first one is in 2 Corinthians 9.7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly and not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, not a, 
Uh, you know, I'm supposed to give this, you know. And also we read in Galatians 2, we just ask that you continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along, very similar to Deuteronomy 26. If any of the aspect of the tithe remains, it has to do with caring for the preachers. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9.14. Maybe not at the level some preachers are making their living from the gospel, but you should be able to, to support the ministry of the church. And we don't really need to worry about giving any of our resources to God through his church because the blessing still remains. 2 Corinthians 9.10 says, He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And God will do this because he's able to do it and he desires to do it. As it says, And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need you will abound in every good work. The tithe is no longer needed for the temple and the priests who provided a form of governance for the Israelites, by the way. But we are governed another way. That's why we have to pay our taxes. This is said in uh, Romans thirteen six through 7. This is why you pay your taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now, it just occurred to me, there's been people throughout time, I think, um, uh, was it Leslie Snipes or one of those celebrities got talked into, you don't have to pay taxes, and there's people that do that, and they give these legal reasons. But if you go read Romans, it says, no, you, you have to pay your taxes <laughs> because God has put these people in place. Not necessarily because he likes them, but because maybe we're being judged by some of them. I don't know. Sometimes it seems like that to me. It also says in 1 Corinthians 16, with regard to your ability to be generous, it's a good idea to set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when a need arises, no collections really need to be made. This church does that. Uh, We have a benevolence fund, and we just voted to use it now because we have a need in the church, we didn't have to take up a special collection because we're following this admonition in Scripture. <clears throat> and the promise of blessing is still in place. We're reading 2 Corinthians, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, before you hear me preaching a prosperity gospel, I'm not saying that. Because this reaping doesn't say you'll necessarily reap money. <laughs> In fact, if I had a choice between getting more money from the Lord and getting more wisdom from the Lord, you know what Proverbs says about wisdom? It's more valuable than gold and silver and gems. I'd rather have that than a person with a lot of money who looks like a fool. Giving generously and cheerfully benefits us. It says in Acts that Lord Jesus himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Something I learned this week, that is not in the Gospels. (laughs) But he must have said it because Luke said he said it, so I'm going to take his word for it. It's more blessed to give than to receive. When I was in graduate school, I was struggling with the amount of reading that we had to do, as well as the academic level 
of the reading. Some of the stuff we were required to read, I would have to read the same page, sometimes the same paragraph, like five, six, seven times. Still didn't get it. I used to read with a dictionary next to me. You know, it's like, this is all to make me feel like I'm an idiot. I could have told you that if I wanted to do an orientation. It was hard, overwhelming to me. So I sought out a professor for his advice, hoping he would relieve me of some of this reading we had to do. And I told him, I said, I'm just oh, getting overwhelmed by how much reading has to be done and the level of stuff we're reading and so on. And you know, I'm worried I might not make it through the program. And he said, oh, Bill, you'll find out. The more you read, the more you can read. And he turned around and walked away. <laughs> Thanks for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, you know, he got to where he was at, so I thought I'll just start doing that. You know what I found out? <laughs> the more you read, the more you can read. And C.S. Lewis said this a little different way. He said, both good and evil increase at a compound interest rate. The more you do of something, the more you'll be able to do of it. He said, the more you are kind to people, the more people you will be kind to, including people that a while back you would have not even given the time of day to. But he also said, the more you are mean to people, the more mean you'll be to them and more people you'll be mean to. The more you fear, the more things you'll find to be fearful of. And the more you love, the more you'll be able to love. Therefore, the more you give, the more you'll enjoy Giving. The more dependent you become on God, the more you'll get to know him and we'll be able to trust him. What is interesting is that it only takes a small decision or a small action to start a whole avalanche of good or evil. That's why it's important to pay attention to the smallest of thoughts or the smallest of actions or the smallest of indulgences. A small act of anger today can result in the loss of a fortress from which the enemy can now launch attacks that would have otherwise been impossible to do because of a small act. So remember, we're created in the image and likeness of God. So to be like God is to be generous. To be unlike God is to be greedy, selfish. People who are greedy eventually become arrogant or angry, Stingy, suspicious, withdrawn, mean, unkind, depressed, and so on. That's why the scriptures tell us that the love of money, not money. They a lot of get that wrong, don't they? Money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, 1 Timothy 6.10. So what is the first and greatest commandment? Not to love money, but to love the Lord your God, with 10% of your heart and 10% of your soul and 10% of your mind. It doesn't say that, does it? You know what it says. All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. It's not 10% anymore. It's 100%. They used to say, you know, marriage is 50-50. And some wise person said, no, marriage is 100-100. I mean, how much did God give to us? He didn't give us 10%. He gave everything to us, his own son. So whatever we hold back from God, be it our money or our time or our body or our relationships or thoughts or possessions, we are robbing him of the opportunity to bless us. And therefore, we're robbing ourselves. 
It's a phrase my mother used to use. I never understood it until I was older. You're cutting off your nose to spite your face. Is that the old I got your nose trick you're doing there on me? Or what's that about, you know? You hold back from God, it requires him to hold back from you. You give everything to God, he gives everything. The blessings are untold. See, we have this free will to depend on ourselves. We have this free will to take care of ourselves, which prevents him from blessing us. We want to bless ourselves. And he has the ability to do that. When we try to bless ourselves, we try to take care of ourselves, as opposed to God doing that. That all backfires. And when we do that, and we try to be a blessing to ourselves, take care of ourselves, protect ourselves, we end up settling for second best if that. So God wants the best for each of us. And in his economy... That means in order to gain our life, we must first lose our life. God's economy is actually the opposite of the world's economy. Looking out for number one, they tell us, protect yourself, make money, give your life to your company and to your business. But God's economy is not to look out for number one, but to look at number one. Not to protect yourself, but let him be your shield. By the way, When you let him be your shield, some arrows might still get through. You know why? Those are the ones you need. Those are for your blessing. He lets it get through. He permits some of these things to go wrong or seemingly go wrong when it really isn't. He also says, give to others, give your life to him, and 100% of it. And the return on that investment, the world could never match it beyond your imagination. So I'm going to ask David to come up. And as he comes up, and as we begin to move into prayer, I want us to think about, what am I holding back from the Lord? How am I becoming a part of my own problem? How can I give more of myself, not just my money, but everything about who I am?